Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. Although on this series on native breeds was never intended to be a boasting contest, a few breeds vie for the position of the oldest in the UK and none more than the Highland cattle breed. Suited to the rugged, wet hill lands of Scotland on the west coast, it was John the Fifth Duke of Argyll who has records of improving the breed back in 1789. So one assumes the breed at least uh, predates that. And I have on the programme this week a Highland cattle breeder, aficionado and historian Angus Mackay. Hi, Andy. And a relatively new breeder, but with no less enthusiasm, Rosemary Hunter. Hi, Andy. Nice to speak to you. Great. Angus, if we'll start with you, the Highland breed obviously hails from the West Coast and would originally be called the West Highland, I guess. And uh, I saw a mention of a debate, uh, I think, from yourself that whether there was such a thing as an Aboriginal breed in Scotland of livestock. And there's much evidence that the Highland may just be that. And in this case, of course, we're talking about the, the term Aboriginal simply means that uh, these animals were here long before the influence of people, I suppose. Well, if there is such a thing or was such a thing as an Aboriginal breed, I think Highland cattle are probably about as close as we're going to get to it in Scotland. Uh, there were several types. What we have to remember, Andy, is there were really no such things as breeds in the 16th and early part of the 17th century. There were various types of cattle found in various locations throughout the land. And over a period of time, most of them developed the name from the location in which they were found. That is the sort of origins of breeds in Scotland. There were three types of Highlanders in those days. One type was referred to as being the West Highland, found in Argyllshire, Kincale, and places like that. And then you had the Kylos. Those were the cattle that came from the Western Isles. And you also had a northern type called Skibos, which were the type found in Sutherland and Caithness, uh, the eastern parts of Ross and Cromarty. Okay, so it's pretty much right through the Highlands, as you said, three different types. And we've seen that in other breeds as well, where the Angus is, or the, the Pole Angus has been a different breed when it gets into to the Galloway part of the world. And with other breeds in this series, we've looked at how improvers have changed the breed to meet their requirements in those locations and whether that be them as draft animals or dual purpose beef and, and milk but uh, in, in this the highland is different really as it hasn't really changed at all has it not to the untrained eye maybe not since the, the beginning of time again what one has to remember is uh, what went on during the agricultural revolution with the introduction of new farming systems that had a major influence on the Angus breed, for instance, with the introduction of the shorthorn and all sorts of things were going on in more fertile districts. The land in which the Highland cattle roamed changed little at that time. So there was actually little need to change the breed as such. That's about right. And still not really to this day. Rosie, if I can bring you into our uninitiated listener, of course, we'll need to be informed that a herd of Highland cattle is known as a fold, isn't it? Uh, can you give me the reasons behind that, Rosie? As far as I can derive, the, the name fold um, comes from the term that was given to the open stone shelters that were used by farmers and crofters as shelter and gathering for their livestock. 
I mean, you can still actually see some in some of the hills, you know, especially coming up the M74. I think there's there's what used to be one or two dotted about. Certainly, a term fold yard is something that would have been uh, familiar in my district down in the south. I mentioned that the West Highland, and and, and you also mentioned uh, Angus the the Kylo. And uh, weren't these original cattle um, pretty much all black in colour uh, uh, back the way? Well, if we go back in time to 18th century, they would be predominantly black. But I have uh, records of old Gaelic songs which make reference to uh, cattle being red and white. They make particular reference. It is a milking song that they wanted cattle with white udders and white tails because they believed them to be the superior milkers. So although there certainly would have been many more black cattle at that time, uh, the colours in the Highland breed have varied since time began. That you don't get a very actually in the breed itself, though. Am I right in saying they're either black or they're white or, or they're they're roan? There's no not like a belty where they, where they have sort of different colours within one breed, or is there? Now, periodically, you will get them red and white. Okay. Periodically, you will. Uh, there were certain strains and certain folks where this was inclined to happen. There are all sorts of theories as to how this came to be. Uh, it's not uncommon to get a red Highlander with a white tail okay. or a white underline. That is you know, still quite common in many folds today. Okay. Uh, where they came from, you know, people have had all sorts of guesses. Was there an introduction of alien blood at one time? Oh, how dare they? <laughs> We maybe go on to that later in the programme, just how some people have really tried to keep them absolutely traditional right back to the beginning of time. But let's just, just move on. But the, just to say that predominantly that most of the Highlanders would be red, I would say. I don't know what percentage that would be, but most of them would be red at, uh, at this time. Would that be right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And in this series, we always like to pinpoint a few pioneers. And I mentioned earlier the Duke of Argyle and a family that would have been involved for many, many generations, Angus. And tell us a bit more about the fifth Duke and his work with the breed, and indeed with agriculture across Scotland. Didn't he organise the first the first show, I believe? Well, the fifth Duke of Argyll was a, a soldier by profession. But once they sorted out the Jacobites, this man began to take a great interest in all things agricultural, to the extent that he was the very first president of the Highland and Agricultural Society of Scotland in 1784. Uh, he held that position for many, many years. Uh-huh. Like a great many other big landowners at that time, they were involved in what was called the droving trade, where uh, every year, literally tens of thousands of cattle from the Highlands the West Highlands, the islands of Scotland, to the various big cattle markets in Scotland, and particularly Falkirk. So there was a lot of money in the cattle business. But the fifth Duke of Argyll realised that in order for this business to flourish, there would need to be an improvement within the Highland breed. And he was totally focused on the Highland breed. And he wanted to see an improvement in their conformation, not necessarily their size. He believed they were big enough in relation to where they were kept. So he organised 
the first ever livestock competition in Scotland on the 20th of October 1784. Now, this competition took place outside the village of Connell, which is not terribly far from Oban, mm-hmm. and it was only for bulls. Right. And various herd owners from the length and breadth of Argyle, and in those days they walked the bulls, swam them over locks and rivers to attend this uh, competition instigated by the Duke of Argyle with the sole purpose of improving the conformation and the fleshing qualities of the breeds. So that, I believe that is one of the, the breeds greatest claims to fame. Okay, and I think we can then by that pinpoint him with the distinction of probably starting the Highland breed as we know it, or certainly bringing the Highland breed together then, uh, Angus. Well, certainly making an effort to, and a more commercial look to the breed, I think he can be credited with that. I think he would have to go down in history as being one of the first improvers. Yeah. Okay, and, and uh, a few other improvers. Um, could we just mention a few folds there? I know you gave me a list of one or two there. Too. Well, you know, the McNeils on the island of Collinsey were renowned for the, the quality of the cattle they kept there, as were a great many other big landowners. The Earl of Tamout, Bridalban, they were prominent as were John Malcolm and Paul Tallock in Argyleshire, extremely prominent, and did a great deal to introduce, not necessarily new genetics, but fresh breeding from other folds and sky units. So they went to a great extent to improve the all, overall quality within the fold. Okay, and, and you mentioned one or two lairds there, and of course a lot of the land in Scotland would be estate-owned uh, back then, some of it still is, of course, And uh, but quite a few of these lairds then would actually take an interest in farming them land them, the, the land themselves and, and the stock that they kept. Oh, they were uh, actively involved. You know, uh, the family name Stuart is probably the most prominent within the early years of the herd book. Uh, and they were tenant farmers. They were not uh, landowners themselves, but they did rent vast tracts of land out in the Western Isles and mainly in Perthshire, Glenlyon, Glenlochy, places like that, where they ran very substantial folds of Highland cattle. And you mentioned then the Herd Book, a breed society was formed in 1884, I think, with the Duke of Athol as president, and the first Herd Book created yeah. in 1885. And uh, who, who would be the individuals responsible for putting that first Herd Book together there? Who would be, in, who would be the first name well, on the sheet there? Well, uh, the gentlemen who were given the task of compiling Herd Records were known as the Editing Committee. And... They were probably the most prominent breeders in various parts of Scotland. We had John Campbell from Shinnis up in Laird, for instance. Then a very prominent breeder in Kinloch Rannoch, Duncan McDermott, was responsible for the Central Belt. Uh, the Mackenzies in Kintail dealt with those areas. Uh, a gentleman, Malcolm, from the Craig House on the island of Mull, de- dealt with Mull. And uh, John Stewart, to whom I've already made mention, 
was responsible for the Outer Isles and the Island of Skye. These gentlemen wrote or contacted every Highland breeder and asked them if they wanted to be a part of this and to furnish them with the details pertaining to their herds, hence the first herd book evolved. The first hair book contained only bulls, and there were 561 of them registered in the first hair book. The second volume only contained cows, and there were 886 cows entered in the first in the second volume. What I think one has to remember was uh, this Highland Cattle Society was quite an exclusive club. It was actually quite expensive to become a member. And the figures I've given you were a fraction of the Highland Castle that were actually in the Highlands of Scotland at that time. Uh-huh. Okay, but it looks like they would be quite a geographical representation across Scotland from the names that you give oh, me yeah. in various oh, areas. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it covered the entire Highland uh-huh. and the island. Obviously, the early West Coast would be very extremely isolated back then still is i suppose and uh, but the opening of the railways in the late 1870s would make a heck of a difference to allow folk to come and go and more importantly to allow livestock to be shipped across the country and one of the early pioneers a chap called thomas corson who's uh, father was managing the ard tornish herd which i think we'll talk about in a, in a wee minute and he saw the opening of the caledonian line from Dalmali down to oban as an opportunity not to be missed and uh basically got some land purchased but next to the railway station and uh and i think he started holding sales of blackface sheep originally but then uh, eventually went on to uh to start the open market which stayed there for a good long time afterwards and uh and the sales started to be held um rosemary i think you've done a little bit of research on on thomas thomas corson yes he, he certainly was a pioneer and we could learn a thing or two from him in this modern day about valuing the cross and the steer and we could also learn a thing or two about his marketing prowess. With the amount of steers there must have been a good demand from the finishers and as in that day, department where we are lacking but back then there was a lot less competition for other breeds. I've talked to many a butcher who would have loved to have Highland on the counter but can't get the supply then there's the flyer of stores who struggle with the lack of demand. The missing link's the middleman. And he certainly saw that. I mean, he saw that opportunity and took it. Uh-huh. And, and in 1892, the first sale of Highlanders was there. And uh, it then moved to Perth and then to Inverness, which shows the sort of diverse geography that we were talking about. And then it returned to Oban and stayed there in 1895. And then a female sale was included. And as you said, with over 1,500 uh, steers and and that very first show again significant angus for for um for the breed and uh you've obviously done a lot of research around this and a few prominent sires of that era that would uh, that would feature in that first show and sale yes that took a bit of organizing and really what brought it all about was uh the revolution in the transportation livestock that's really what brought these big sales. Uh, as you well know yourself, Andy, uh, up until 50 years ago, all the markets were more or less uh, concentrated in the centre of towns and all of them adjacent to the railways. That is how important the railways were. So the first sales in Oban could bring cattle from all over the Highlands. 
you know, they may have to travel for a couple of days, but it was so much easier to put them on a train and get them to Oban than it once was walking them many a mile. And all the big famous herds uh, featured in those early sales. The Bredalban herd, the Marquis of Bredalban, the Duke of Athol's herd, uh, featured pro- prominently. Once again, you have uh, John Stewart from Ensey, from the island of Harris. You have John Stewart from Bohaskill, uh, down near Ka- Calendar. Uh, the coming of the railways was the making of marketing as we know it today. And Angus, could you give us the name of a few prominent sires and bulls of around about that time, please? Uh, one of the most influential sires of that time was a bull called Callum Rebuch of Athol. He was born in 1875. Uh, he was owned by John Malcolm of Poltalloch down there near Loch Gilthead. Uh, he had had quite a famous show career before Mr. Malcolm uh, bought him. Uh, so a lot of the stock were related to this Callum Rebuch family. And then you had uh, the well-known Shobu Loch, which was bred by John Stewart of Ensey. He was born in 1894. And I believe, to the best of my recall, he won the Highland Show on three occasions, uh, 1896, 1897, and for a third time in 1901. Quite a unique feat. Now, that bull was used extensively within the Highland breed, and I believe he eventually ended his days in Applecross. Uh, I believe his head still adorns the walls <laughs> in that Applecross house. His sire was a bull called Ketternach Bowie, which featured in a great many of the early registrations. Then again, you go back to a bull, Callum Bowie of Athol, who had a successful show career, but also made a stamp on the breed, which a great many breeders today can still trace their cattle back to those cattle. Certainly, there's uh, there are one or two that certainly that, that try try very hard to make sure that they can trace every pedigree back there, just going down that uh, traditional route. And and as we move through the turn of the century, I think we mentioned a few of those um few of those folds that were at the fore, obviously the the Duke of Athol and um the Callum Reback that you mentioned. Would that be Callum Reback the second? Would be first prize uh, senior bull at the, at the sale and sold for a hundred and fifty five pounds in. 1900. You are right, yes. You know, that was uh, a vast sum of money at that time. Certainly would be compared to what the average animals were making, indeed. And um, you mentioned Applecross, and I believe the folding Applecross is still on the go just now, isn't it? We maybe come to them later. It's still in existence today, thankfully. You know, it's gone through several owners in its time, from the original owner to the Mackenzies, but there are still cattle grazing in Applecross today, still registering cattle in the herd books. I've been in the Applecross Inn for a few, many, many times. What a wonderful little little village it is, too. We move on at the Highland Show in, in 1900. So the turn of the century, basically, was at Stirling. And again, the Duke would be prominent for most of the classes. But we've got another herd who sort of 
pipped him to the post in a few of those classes, and that's I mentioned earlier on is uh, Ard Tornish uh, heard from, I believe, Tom Valentine Smith from uh, from Morbin, uh, and a very prominent, yes, prominent uh, herd. a very prominent herd indeed. The Valentine Smiths were uh, English brewers. They had breweries in London. I believe uh, Smiths Bitter can be traced back to them. Oh. Anyway, to get back to their fold of Highland cat cattle in Tornish, they went to great lengths to secure some of the best breeding around, whether it came from the Duke of Athol or the famous Bohascio fold. They went to great lengths to buy the very, very best. And I believe at one time, at the turn of the century, uh, a tarnish would be the place to go to buy some of the best in the breed. Mm-hmm. And I've got slightly confused when I was looking through the records because I've got later on, I think in 1907, I've got a man, Craig Seller, owning the Ard Tornish herd. So one assumes they, I, th- I believe Tom Valentine Smith maybe died and, and were they sold that on or maybe he would have inherited that or we're not quite sure? No, no, no. This, the change of ownership was through marriage. Mr. Seller married uh, Mr. Smith's daughter. I see. And that kept the herd going. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, and anybody who knows anything about uh, 19th century Scottish history, uh, the name Seller was not the most popular in the north of Scotland. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I'll and go... We're, we're, not dealing, we're not dealing with the Highland clearances on this occasion. <laughs> Okay, and I do believe that name still goes to this day. Is it not adorned to one of the cups that's still handed out at the open sale, the Craig Seller Trophy, I believe? The Craig Seller Trophy is handed out every year at our sale in Oban, indeed, yes. And among other exhibitors, uh, Sir Donald Curry. Uh, Sir Donald Curry and Garth, you know, at the foot of Glenlyon. The quality of cattle in Glenlyon was renowned. You had... uh, various very good folds. Uh, the McNaughton's, who are still in the breed today, had their origins from Glenlyon. Now, that was over a 100 years ago. But the quality of cattle, Sir Donald Curry being one, uh, they were renowned. That particular part of Scotland, you know, that is the Bredalbany area. So that was a real bastion of the breed at the beginning of the 20th century. And I've seen another name, the Countess Dowager of Seafield and uh, from Castle Grant, and I believe Seafield would have bred Angus cattle as well. We talked about the Angus on a recent podcast, and uh, an Erica coming from Seafield who started the famous Joanna Erica line at Harveston. So this would probably be the, be the same Seafield, I would guess. The very same, Andy. And, you know, that highlights... Uh, how much we owe. You know, the aristocracy in Scotland can be criticised for all sorts of things. But I believe any serious pedigree breeder, in particular of cattle, owes the aristocracy quite a lot. They were genuinely interested in pedigree livestock breeding and improving not only the Angus breed, but the Highland breed. So uh, that was a classic example, uh, the sea, sea fields at Castle Grant. 
And if we move on just through to the 1920s a little bit, a, a bull that uh, was champion at the Oban sale and broke the record. And uh, Angus, I can't pronounce his name. Tell me, please. Again, we're back to uh, Donald Stewart, the NC on the island of Harris. And he bred this outstanding bull, uh, Anti Urama was his name. And he was champion at the Oban sale in 1920. Uh, there was an enormous amount of interest in this bull, and he sold for the record price of 400 guineas to Lady Ogilvy Dalgleish of Errol Park, down at Errol, uh, who had been breeding Highland cattle for a number of years, but she suddenly took it upon herself to breed better Highland cattle, and she could not have bought a better bull than that bull that day. Uh, people were astounded at the price, but she wanted the bull, and she bought the bull. But he went on to be a breeder, didn't he, Angus? He, he did. He bred extremely well. Uh, they took a son of his to the sale in Oban in 1926. Now, he was reserve champion, but he could only command the rather small price of 80 guineas. But thankfully, that did not deter the Earl of Home from buying this bull. He was in the process of establishing his herd down there at Douglas in Lanarkshire. And there will be few bulls, in retrospect, that had a greater influence on the breed than Antiurumach of Earl. He really put a stamp on the Douglas fold. One of the reasons... He probably was not expensive. He was light done in colour, not a popular colour at all. But he had everything else that a Highland bull needed. And he seriously left his stamp for generations. And I believe he went on to win the Highland, went on to win the Highland show as well, uh, am I right, Angus? Yes, I cannot tell you who judged the Highland show on that occasion, 1927, but he paid little attention to the bull's colour. He saw what was an outstanding example of the breed and uh, placed them reserve overall cha- champions. Superb. Great history. And then another bull, uh, Ochmar, um, again, went on to be a, to be significant, I think. Oh. Ochmar, again, uh, he was bred by a gentleman, John Christie, uh, and this Ochmar was full of apple breeding, some of the best apple bre- breeding. Uh, he was the second prize two-year-old at the Bullfield in Open in 1926. Unfortunately, he landed in a good fold of Highland cattle. You'll have seen this yourself, Andy, some really good bulls coming to sale. And they leave the ring and you say to yourself, it's such a pity that bull didn't go to a good place. To the right hands, yeah. Well, on this occasion, Ochmar, he went to a good place. He went to James Carnegie's fold, uh, Strone Var, which is near in Balquida, Lohernhead di- district. Now, this particular Carnegie family uh, are distantly related to the Earls of South Esk, who were also Carnegies and heavily involved in pedigree livestock breeding. So Ochmar in the Stronebar fold really left his stamp and you can trace 
even today, you can trace so many of the best female bloodlines, uh, the Lady Whites in particular, back to this bull, Ochmar. Excellent. Excellent. And the average price of Highland bulls in the 1920-11 aged bulls average 60 guineas. And 33 two-year-old bulls average 75 and 23 yearling bulls average 38. So they weren't quite the high flyers that obviously we were seeing in the short ones and the Angus. But uh, oh. that would still be oh, a, no. a decent, no. decent trade for, for, for animals from the hill. Well, and I think what you have to bear in mind, Andy, is uh, the Angus had several avenues for their bulls. You had a pedigree market and you had a never-expanding commercial market, as did the shorthorn breed. There is only really one market for a Highland bull, and that is to be used within a pedigree here. Sure. And, of course, they they had the export market. Yeah. Yeah. The export market periodically throughout this period uh, helped a lot. Mm. Yeah. But it was always pedigree breeding purposes the bulls would be sold sure uh you mentioned the earl of south esk and i will just uh, um, go back to him of course was james carnegie and he again was credited for providing the foundation cattle for the for the angus herd for um hugh watson of keeler the Angus from Kinnaird yes. Castle yes. in the late 1700s. Yes. So, and then a, right. and a later Charles yes. Carnegie, it would be the 10th Earl, shows up of breeding Carina of South Esk, born in 1924, who went on to be champion at the Highland Show. So these, these Carnegies are, are some crowd. Well, they, no, they really were. This is another great example of the aristocracy and how enthusiastic they were in relation to breeding high-quality pedigree stock. And by the end of the 20s, we saw a change in fashion, uh, uh, Rosemary, in just about everything. And the Highlander was no exception. And rather than being exhibited in their slick coats, it became more commonplace to show these Highlanders in full hair and, and, and a complete uh, complete change. And how, how, would, how would they go about doing that then, showing these animals sort of um, fully coated in, in the summer? I think every kind of stockman would have their trick up their sleeve, you know, and, and how to bring them out. And, you know, some of them probably died with those stockmen. Um, but as the housing might have kept them off the grass as well, you know, would stop them, um, you know, molting. Um, so that may well be, you know, how some of them um, also nowadays try and keep, um, you know, the hair on them. It's as I say, it's it's trying to get these tricks is sometimes quite difficult. I'm but... not going to steal all your trade secrets there, but I mean, is that still an issue where you do try and you know, when we used to show fat stock cattle, we used to shave them in January so they would grow the hair back again. I'm sure that's not even allowed within your breed, but I guess there's ways of getting that coat out early doors so that you can get it to grow back on. And Angus, that would be right. Putting them in the house would be one of those, would it? Get them in the house. Get them onto wooden flats and tie them in such a way that they can't turn their heads and pull the hair out with their horns. This was um, frowned upon in many's assuring because the the effects of doing that, uh, as you can imagine, they were being quite well fed at the time, their feet had a tendency to grow because they really weren't... uh, probably exercised as much as they should be. And I have one or two photographs here of prominent show winners who Need the foot were trimmer. shown in a rather artificial 
days. They were actually, they used to tie the hair back on again. If a piece came off, I spoke to an old gentleman many, many years ago. And he said, Angus, you have no idea how long it took to tie the hair on. And if I couldn't find a bit, I had to go and get a bit from another beast and tie it on. <laughs> now, I, I, this is serious, and this is the extent. Now, the reason for this was, there was a reason for, for it. There was a suspicion that some of these naked cattle, are they pure? Now, that's a great big cow, but she doesn't have an awful lot of hair. I wonder, I wonder. So they were convinced that the cattle with these great excessive coats were far purer than some of them. And that, that was how it came to be. It had nothing whatsoever to do with confirmation or anything else. As you well know, Andy, it was a fashion. A fashion it was, and that's a, that's a great tale to hear. I did hear one a chap that's, that uh, sewed a tail on a sheep once, but I've never heard of anybody tying the hair back on the cattle. That's wonderful. And the colour started to dominate by then, didn't they? We said red. Yeah, red is the main colour these days, but to our uninitiated listener, we do have black highlanders and duns and, and even white ones, rosy and... and be like the Galloways, really, but uh, do, do you, which ones are in demand in, in this modern day? Are there sort of breakaway groups breeding, particularly breeding one colour, or, or is it just, or the, where does the dominance lie? Yeah, I mean, it's to each breeder's choice, you know, what colour they prefer, preference. Um, you have a uh, Kilrockleys, which has, you know, the predominant, uh, you know, black cattle. Um, also, Kilich, uh, Strachan and Mull as well a lot predominantly black. It's amazing, actually. I've been through open with, with you know, a, a champion calf, and then we've had one further down the classes I've done, which is, was an excellent calf, and it made more money than the champion calf. Uh, uh. <laughs> because it was just seen as being different. But if in the show world, unless it's a really, really good done, it doesn't tend to get placed. Okay. Um we, I've found the done ones actually have really good frames on them, so it's just people's preference and such. I've seen them, maybe Angus, you could tell me there's a there was a white calf uh, from Glengorm, and it made oh, did it make a lot of money in that a few years back? I, I think Rosie she made about four and a half thousand mm-hmm. to the best, but I think it was in around there, and that was she was a decent calf, Rosie, but yeah. it was really the colour. It yeah. was the colour that did it. And and, yeah. and would I yeah. would there be a dominance with one colour um, against on on different crosses? I know black tends to be the the dominant colour in a lot of breeds. Certainly, the Galloways we've talked about, um, where you put a black one on a dun one, you'll probably still get more black ones. And and or maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. Is one colour more dominant, or is red just generally come out? Uh, at one time, if we're going back to the beginning of the Herbrook days. Now, uh, it was considered that all the best poles had a variance of colour within their folds. It, none of these chaps in those days specialised in any colour at all. Uh, what happened during, let's just say, the first quarter of the 20th century was the popularity of the Cross Highland Heifer as a suckler cow. Mm-hmm. Now, Cross Highland Heifers of light roan colour would command a premium over any other cross-highland heifer. So that... And I believe that 
that brought about almost the death knell for black Highlanders. That almost brought it about. And had it not been for the Achnacloys fold at Connell, which was founded in 1901, they thankfully held on to the two black strains within their fold. And everything in this Highland breed today in this country can trace their origins back to those Achnacloys cattle. Okay. So thankfully the Excellent. Okay. Again, great history. Thank you. And if we move on in the late 1800s, the first few Highlanders were exported, we mentioned earlier on, to Canada. And a chap called Robert Campbell from Strathclair in Manitoba took some good cattle over there um, with him, Angus, didn't he? And I would assume he was of Scottish descent, obviously. He certainly was. He hailed from Perthshire. And he got involved with the Honourable Donald Smith, who was involved in the Hudson Bay Company and they saw great opportunities for the Highland breed in Canada and uh, the gentleman uh, Robert Campbell came back to Scotland and bought cattle again from Glenlyon, again from the Duke of Athol, areas he, he had known well as a young man and that was the first introduction of the Highland breed to Canada, where it's uh, done particularly well, as you can imagine, the climate there is ideally suited to the Highland breed. So that was one of the very first uh, exportations from the Highlands across the Atlantic. Okay, certainly would would be suited to some of that uh, that more northern and, and western Canada climate. You're right. And by the 1920s, it was uh, uh, North America, USA started to take in a few as well, didn't they? Including the the Two Bar Cattle Company in Wyoming, who took a shipment, I think, from from one of the dispersal sales. And uh, again, that would be something new, well, new for those guys. Uh, one of the oldest folds uh, in the breed, the Balranald fold, when it was dispersed in the early 1920s. Uh, a cattle agent uh, bought all the very best cattle from that fold, not only females, but three young bulls, and they were shipped uh, across the sea and eventually found themselves in Wyoming with this uh, very large cattle ranch, the Two Bar Cattle Company in Wyoming. Now, one of the reasons they were taken there was to improve the hardiness of the native stock in that ranch. He was going to put Highland genetic to his hair to improve their hardiness and their ability to what can be pretty tough winters in Wyoming. That was the reason they went. It wasn't necessarily to establish Island Fold, which they did eventually do. We've certainly had that discussion on previous podcasts where in that area they were running a lot of shorthorns and then they brought the Hereford cattle in, which were a little bit hardier there. And by crossing a, a Highland in, of course, would uh, certainly would help with that hardiness through the winter when they've got little or... Yeah. or else to eat and of course by the late 20s they found their way all over the world they were in the the Falkland Islands and then later in Peru and uh, my son lives in Peru and up in the mountains there it gets pretty high where all the yaks live so these things will live just about uh, anywhere and I think they again went from the Duke of uh, Athol or Rosie there'd be some that'd be some climate to take a, take a few Highlanders to that'd, that'd t- be a testing to them would it? Um, I, mean, I think the, the Falklands would certainly suit the beasts um, very well. You know, the temperature staying between 5 and 10 degrees C 
um, give or take right year round. You know, it's a constant, so they probably keep their hair on pretty well as well. Um, and also the below freezing temperatures seen in the Andes in the winter, not a problem. I mean, if they can survive here at Shorts, we've seen snow in July, then um, <laughs> yes, I would reckon they'll survive anywhere. <laughs> Certainly got some good grounding where they've come from to just about to be anywhere this side of the Arctic Circle or maybe even north of it. Uh, and another bull, uh, I'm talking on the exports here that made his mark in the USA, youngest was a bull called Finglas Lauch. Lauch. Finglas Lowe. Yeah, Finglas Lowe was champion when he appeared at the Open Bulls sale. Uh, He was not a popular champion. Again, from what I've been told, uh, he lacked the quality of hair. And some people asked, you know, not this, maybe something else got involved in this animal's pedigree somewhere along the way. Thankfully, uh, he found a buyer at not a particularly high price. I think it was about eight, a hundred guineas. And he found his way to the United States. He was used in several hair, but he eventually found his way to a fold called Picture Mountain, which was owned by a Dr. Faulkner. And it was there Finglas Loch really left his mark. He left females in particular of tremendous conformation and scale. Now, Pitcher Mountain was, I was there 38 years ago, and I saw some of the fairly distant descendants of this particular bull. And I can honestly say uh, I had never seen Highland cattle with conformation like that in my life. They were absolutely outstanding cows. It's amazing how a bull can really leave their mark and his influence is still felt in several big herds in the United States today. What a legend indeed. And a few of them found their way into Europe around the early 70s, I suppose, moving on, particularly Sweden, and they'd be well-seated, I'm sure, in in Scandinavia, wouldn't they? Uh, Up there, that is cold. Uh, well, certainly, as I say, good good presence in uh, Scandinavia, Denmark, and Finland too. Um, you know, very popular, very keen members out there, and you know, buying well um, to to stock. Um, so it would also help um, with the climate and also with the you know their horns for predation issues that they may have with wolves and uh, and lynx and such. And, but nothing really as major as when the late 80s, when the shipment started to go to Germany. And, and we all remember those days. Uh, we've talked about it in the Galloways too, but a gold rush, wasn't it? And in, in total, uh, 30 heifers were exported to two breeders in Germany, Herr Ludwig Dahl and Jobs von Schack. Yes. Cattle came from the Duneside and Skrone Palace uh, folds, would I be right? Uh, those were the two folds that were initially involved in what became, uh, some people refer it to as an export boom. It actually got to the extent, Andy, that I feared for the Highland breed in this country when I saw the number of very good uh, Highland females and bulls that were going, that were leaving the country. It, It more or less brought about the end of the famous Schoon Palace fold. 
And uh, I said to John McKechnie, the Scotsman in Doonside, that if you don't slow this down, you'll have no cattle left in Doonside. Uh, it's all very well taking the money, and the Angus breed knows all about this too, but one has to be very, very careful. You don't sell the best blood. Don't sell your seed corn, you're right. And we mentioned Doonside again, of course, great Aberdeen Angus breeders, and uh, uh, they were making their mark in in the Highlands around about that time and they were the first to break a thousand guineas at auction and they broke the record with a with a with an Angus at fifty four thousand and um but they broke the record yep. again I think yep. with a bull to Canada for two thousand four hundred and uh yeah just just a, a able boys there at uh, at Doonside. Ah uh, they're extremely able. Uh, you know I, I was fortunate to get to know John McKechnie very well, the Highland cattle herdsman. And I think the Angus herdsman, when I was there, was he Henry Durban? Would be Henry. There would be Vic Finley, and then Henry would take over from him. I think you're right. That, that's right, yeah, Henry. That's right, that's Andy. But you know, they were they were outstanding stocksmen. Uh-huh. You could have given them any breed at all, and and they knew how to pick cows. Uh-huh. You know, there is an enormous amount of emphasis put on bulls, but as you well know, if you don't get your cow herd right. You can have the best bulls in the world and go nowhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and these, the gentlemen we've just spoken about knew how to develop a herd of cows. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful guy. And back to these exports, it would be a massive project into the Netherlands that would start taking the big numbers of Highlands and Galloways too for conservation and rewilding. And that's a fashionable word these days, I know. And, uh, you know, these Dutch people, I believe you sold them, you sold them one of your bulls, Angus. Oh, I did indeed. You know, I, I got involved with this conservation group. Myself and the late Andrew Morrow, whom I believe you may have bumped into yes, in your time, um, <laughs> helped a gentleman called Eric Vanderbilt, who was the manager of this particular conservation project. And over the summer, uh, we got together, I think, 40-odd females and eventually four rather good Highland bulls. Uh, he ended up with a bull of mine because one of the other bulls had failed his avian TB test and I had only two days to find a bull. And a bull of my own breeding, Seamus of Eden Tiger, I thought, Seamus, you're going to have to go to Holland. <laughs> uh, I, I don't grudge him the bull, but I still sort of kick myself today saying, Angus, maybe that wasn't the best thing you ever did. But, but he was he grew into a massive bull. Uh-huh. He really made a stamp uh, in that fold of cattle in the Netherlands. And a lot of his progeny eventually found their way to Germany. Well, so yeah. deep down the side, I, I, didn't, I didn't grudge him the bull. But I must admit, occasionally it still pangs a bit. He probably would have enjoyed going onto some lower ground than what you've got up there, Angus. It wouldn't be, there wouldn't be too, oh, well, too many yeah, hills I, in the I, Netherlands. I, I was, yeah. Fairly high elevation at that time, so no, he had a great life, Seamus. He he had a good life in the Netherlands. You mentioned briefly the Germans. A shipment from the Pollock Falls went uh, uh, from to Germany, and and stockman Bill Smith, uh, another great man, a friend of mine, where he he took the job in Germany. Probably the first Scotsman to to take a cattleman's job in Germany, and and. Uh, went to a chap called Herr Baumer and uh, Baumer eventually ended up buying the old Oban sail ring and I was there at the first sale that he had over there so uh, um, he, Herr Baumer was some character but Bill Smith very able man. Bill was a very able man and Baumer was very fortunate to get him because uh, 
he was spending vast amounts of money and it could all have too easily gone wrong uh, had he not taken on Bill to keep him, well, I'm not saying the straight and narrow, but uh, he helped Bowmer establish his head and he held a lot of rather successful sales in Germany, thanks to Bill. He did. I went, as I said, I went to one of them, and uh, what a great occasion it was. And it's been mentioned previously, I think, on the podcast. And it would be the ski season that would attract the Austrian buyers to the animals to graze the Alps to help avoid the avalanches, I believe. And don't know why they haven't got any cattle of their own that could do that job. They've got Simmentals and Salers and various well, things from that part of the world. But uh, what can a Highland do that an Alpine breed can't can't do there, uh, Rosemary or Angus? Uh. Well, um, I've been to Austria a number of times and I was actually really surprised the first time to come across, you know, Highland cattle. And, um, yes, the, you know, and the more we've went out, the more we've seen of them. Um, it's, and it, indeed, at one time, it was the biggest pedigree beef breed um, during the 2000s in the, uh, Austria. Uh, you know, and I think it was good. It was it was good with the sure footedness of the breed, the its ability to roam and forage, um, helped with the, you know, the the binding of the ground. You know, to, to and you know, so the pot marks would stop the avalanches. I've not been in the winter, so I would reckon they'd be all right out wintered as well in the in the lower slopes and valleys. Um, whereas you know the small farms and the, the Tyrol and such, it's they have really good housing units, um, but I would reckon that will be for more your 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 uh, Simmentals, the the Slayers and other local breeds. <laughs> I'll be getting some phone calls on this one, but uh, so you're saying the, the Highlanders are a lot more sure-footed than a Simmental. I don't think I could. Uh, I don't think we could deny yeah. that, Angus. Could we? The first Austrian to take Highlanders to his native land was a gentleman called Arnold Feuerstein. Uh, he was a plumber. He had a plumber's business, but he also was a bit of a conservationist. And he had used to go with his grandfather and spend the summer in the high Alps with cattle. And he absolutely loved that. That's what all those little villages once did. But because of changes in various breeds throughout Europe, they stopped using the alpine pasture. The quest was for bigger cattle, just as it was in Scotland at that time. And they became less suited to grazing the alpine pastures. One breed in particular, which we haven't mentioned, is the Tyrolean Grey, uh, which was the breed Arnold was familiar with as a boy. And he told me that day in open, he said, Angus, we've ruined the Tyrolean Grey. He said... We've not paid enough attention to their feet and their locomotion. That is why I'm in Oban, wanting to buy Highland cattle. So we can once again utilise these high alpine pastures, keep the grazing quality good, keep it low, so that when the avalanche season comes in the spring, the fragile topsoil does not get pulled away with long grass. Okay. So that is the real reason Highland cattle were introduced to uh, the High Alps. 
in Austria. Okay, that makes makes a lot of sense. I've skied there as well, and if, I, if they've stopped the avalanche, then uh, I'm ever grateful to them. And uh, we we move on in 1993. Of course, the the BSE uh, crisis would put the tin hat on the exports, and then follow that up, of course, with the 2001 foot and mouth it about nail it down altogether but i think by then these overseas guys would have a lot of genetics good genetics over there to furnish their own uh, their own breeders and uh, you mentioned you'd been there rosemary are, are we uh, are we starting to buy a few back from these guys now they they got some genetics that uh, that we want uh, no i've not been to to germany but uh, i know i have friends that have done and certainly um i've known for you know a bull to come back as well as I believe Willie McLean, I think, bought one back as well okay. at one time. Right. Um, but yes, I mean, like the great thing about Facebook is that we're able to see pictures and impress with, you know, with a lot of the German photos of the cattle that have been put up. Certainly, uh, Angus has provided me with some great photographs of Highlands as well, so that'll uh, adorn our own Facebook group uh, uh, when this uh, podcast comes to light. Rather during that period. And the, the BSE and the foot and mouth time. Uh, certainly, all of the European countries that had become involved in the breed had a, a solid foundation. But they were foresighted enough and they imported some genetics from Canada, both semen and embryos. So that added to their mix. And that has held them in very good stead with some genetics that we simply don't have here, but they have recently, in the last 15 years or so, uh, I believe Ken Brown, the Craigow Millfold, uh, brought in a black bull from Austria, which was the result of uh, those Canadian importations. Okay. So that is certainly going on now. Okay. Okay. And Angus, we're going to step back a little bit now, back a bit closer to home and, and uh, UK. It would be the introduction of cow subsidies in the 1940s, I suppose, that would start putting more pure Highland cows back oh. back on the Scottish hills rather than seeing them going down and being, and being crossed with, with the lowland cows. Well, the reason uh, the subsidies were introduced was because of uh, food shortages during the Second World War. Uh all the low ground was put into crop and dairy production, and that was pushing livestock production up onto the hills again. Uh, during the economic depression of the late 20s and early 30s, farming went through an extremely difficult time. Uh, farms were nigh on impossible to let. Stock was leaving the highlands and droves, both sheep and cattle. So the government knew they had to do something to prevent this and get cattle back onto the hills. So they introduced what became known as the hill cattle subsidy. And that in turn saw some very big cattle enterprises being developed. You had uh, Lord Lovett's cattle enterprise in Glenstrathfara, where he ran four or five hundred cows. They were mainly Irish cows. And then you had the great Glen cattle ranch, uh, between Fort William and Spean Bridge, which was organised by the Canadian uh, Mr Hobbs. And he wanted to have a cattle ranch there run along Canadian lines. Okay. And that was successful for a number of years. And with regard to the Highland breed, you had the famous shorthorn breeder, Mr Duncan Stewart of Mill Hills, who established 
a large, I'll say cattle ranch in Glenlochy in Perthshire. He owned several farms in around Tyndrum and Cree and Larry area, and he developed a very large cattle enterprise there, uh, the foundation being Highland Cattle. Several other, well, Mrs. Bowser from Ben Moore established her herd round about that time. Uh, again, the Dune Sidefold was formed shortly after that because of the increased demand for Highland cattle. So the introduction of that subsidy had a very positive effect on the Highland yeah, route. Yeah. And, and one we probably missed mentioning there was uh, Francis Walker at uh, Lays Castle. Would that be a, a similar time? Sir Francis Walker, who, as you say, was extremely uh, successful at Smithfield Show, he established this fold to the best of my recall, about 1938. He was totally focused on uh, the commercial attributes of the breed. Hence his success at Smithfield and what was then the Scottish National Fat Stock Show in Perth. Certainly was, and, and only won that m- numerous times, but sometimes would be the only one supporting it as well, and carried on doing that for all the days I can remember. And uh, and I believe the, the Lace Castle fold is still on the go just now, is it? Yeah, doing a bit of research there, and it's, it's Lee's still shows around the country, and um, it's now owned by the McGilvery's, but it's very much part of the the you know, the history of the place to keep the cattle legacy going. Um, Hugh Sagers is the manager, and then we've got um, Dale Scott, who's a very um, able stockman, and, uh, you know, did was it the Stars of the Future at the weekend and did well there. Good to see that that one's, uh, that one's still there, certainly remember. Donald McDermott was the stockman at Leeds Castle, and he had a sidekick who was equally well-known called John Crilly. Okay. They, they took London by storm. <laughs> they certainly did. They were great, As you great, well know. great characters. They were great characters. And on the subject of Smithfield, I'll stick my neck out and say one of the best steers that I've seen in any breed, I think, was a steer from uh, Richie Thompson in the very last uh, uh, Royal Smithfield show in 2004. And uh, I don't know if any of you remember that guy, but what a cracking beast he was. Yeah, Sir William, 490 kilograms at 576 days, um, as I say, only brought out by Rich, bred by David Sutherland. Um, with the bright and seen, Caroline Ronald um, bought it. Um, and this is certainly, you know, looking at the, I've got the cup here from the Scottish National Fat Stock Club. Oh, you've got to get that one uh, in. have to get that one in. <laughs> Not for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> not not for much longer, but I might get it back again. Okay. Um, and uh, it's amazing the names that are on it, and certainly Walker of Lees is, is on it numerous times. Oh, you know, um, over the years. But certainly that was a tremendous piece, and not just me saying that. I think a lot of people said if we'd have clipped the hair off it and the horns off it and put it in as in, in amongst the commercials, it still would have been standing its own as, as a tremendous carcass and that's moving on to that side maybe we'll mention in a minute where we, the, the, the highland beef side of it was something we we need to touch on because obviously uh, the hair tends to hide a lot of that but let's just just move on to we come to the close of this history a little bit and we mentioned the old market and uh, tremendous institution wasn't it and the last sale uh, angus i believe you judged it didn't you and uh, a great occasion that one. Oh, i had the honor to judge the last sale and Corson's Mart, uh, 
I, it, and, and it was a good sale. It was a good sale indeed. Uh, the judging part of it was made a little more difficult because the judging ring had to be divided uh, from high health status herbs to those who of lesser health status. So that made the judging interesting. Uh, what difference a piece of string made across the middle of a ring Still to this day, I really can't understand, but we won't go into that. Um, no, it was a sad day in many respects. My champion I picked, I wasn't particularly popular, I picked a white bull, uh, shown by Rich Thompson again. As I believe, there were bigger bulls there, there were bulls that were probably more fashionable, but Rich Thompson's bull. Uh, was by far the most correct animal there. Uh, he stood square on legs, he had tremendous conformation, and he could walk. That bull could have walked back home, and it wouldn't have put him up or down. Too many of the bigger bulls, the more fashionable bulls, were not too pretty on their legs. And I was slated that day, because several of the other bulls were making four and five thousand pounds, well, my champion could only command 2,000, but well. that didn't change my mind <laughs> about him. But, that, but uh, I, as the sale ended, they were tearing down the old map. Yeah. The pens were being demolished as yeah. their last hammer fell. I, I remember it very well, as you said, a sad day. But the new mark added a new and possibly more professional era to, to the breed and to the area, of course. And uh, when it was being opened by the, the Princess Royal, I was commissioned to clip a steer out in front of her so that she could see the beef that was underneath it. And as I said, we're looking at uh, getting into marketing it. But she wasn't particularly impressed, uh, um, Angus. Uh, some folks were, I think, but it's, uh, she definitely wasn't and, and, and gave me a good telling off afterwards. But uh, it's a thin line between... Yep the beef and tradition that you mentioned there we've got to see the carcass and got to understand that the highland beef is in demand and and, uh, and we need to know what's there indeed you know it, it never fails to amaze me I, I visited america quite a lot how american cattle judges can assess cattle without laying a hand on them <laughs> i i believe that is uh, virtually impossible yes uh, you need to get your hands on a beast to assess what you're seeing is actually real and that the fleshing qualities are what you want. Handling cattle is a very important thing and we don't do enough of it. I think if, if, if uh, Her Highness had her way that day, she'd be tying the hair back on. <laughs> I think I was going to thought I was going to go in the tower at one minute, I tell you, but anyway, I live to I tell. I thought that too. <laughs> I held your ground, yes. <laughs> and we just move on through a few names that are synonymous or were synonymous with the breed round about that time. And of course, there was Mary McLean and, and her and her family. And you mentioned uh, um, Willie earlier on. And of course, there's brother Charlie down the south as well. Very able family, the McLeans. Very able indeed. Um, you know, we were fortunate with the West Club to go and visit Furlock. And, and, and she was there that day and, and had a good chat with her. She just loved her cattle. Day and it showed, you know, and same with Willie and Charlie, they're, they're excellent stock people. Certainly, high, highly admired by by many people within the trade. Another great character I remember dealing with at that time was a chap called Donald McGilvery on Mull, lovely guy, and uh, I think he had a bull, might have been at that old market that uh, that made, would I be right, a breed record at the time of twenty thousand pounds. Yes, I believe that stood for a long time, but it uh, was just broken uh, not so long ago at the Mottison Dispersal. 
Um, there you go, that William McLean coming through again uh, for the Ian Moore 70th and Watterson, uh, which made 23,000 guineas. And it actually went to the Carnegie's of Balrani. And listening to you talk about Carnegie's, I'm my head, I'm wondering if it's a connection there. It'd be good if it came back round. Well, I believe there is every possibility that could be the case. Uh, going back to personalities in more recent times, we in the Highland Breed have been very fortunate. Uh, the number of lady members who have been very, very successful. You've just mentioned Mary McLean, uh, who had a great run of cattle. She had some outstanding females and really was very, very successful. Prior to that, we had a lady called Rosemary Dalgleish from Barbrett, who took over the fold from her father. She, again, used to bring some of the finest Highland females to the sales in Oban. And then we had Mrs. Judy Bowser from Benmore. Uh, she had a wonderful fold of cattle and was extremely dedicated to she them. Was. For I she must was, have been yeah. nigh on 60 years. And one mustn't forget my great pal Ina McNeil from North Hewitt, one of the staunchest supporters and did much to reintroduce the Highland breed to the Outer Isles. Okay. So we've been extremely lucky in that respect. Angus McGilvery, Donald's younger brother, was the stocksman to Mrs. Nelson at Ashnacloy. That's it. You know, uh, the Ashnacloy fold is the oldest fold in the breed today, and they're still going strong. But, uh, no, Mrs. Nelson was a, a staunch, staunch supporter of the breed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, again, Donald and his brother Angus, two very fine stocksmen. Mull, Mull has always been a great stronghold. You know, you have Hugh McPhail's Calacalli hair still going strong. You have the Nelsons in Glengorham still going strong. So the breed's in good hands. I remember also dealing with a lovely gentleman from the Knockfold, uh, round about just north of Oban there, I think it happened. Yeah, they were the Montgomery family. And they established a really fine fold. And I believe they moved to France and the fold went to Mrs. O'Hara, kept it on and were equally as successful. And subsequently, in the last 18 months or so, the fold has changed hands again. And, but the Highlanders are still there. Great. Yes, great. and in good hands. Great. He was a good customer of mine. And of yep. course, I was in the business of selling grooming equipment. And in fact, when the... The Germans were buying the cattle in, in Oban. Of course, there were a lot of wealthy English wannabe lairds snapping up anything with hair and horns, really. And I remember that last Oban sale, taking oh. taking a dryer oh. with me on a demo. And I think I sold a dozen that day and a lot more afterwards. A well worth trip for me. But, uh, yeah, they were... <laughs> They, they were some, to anybody who had the, the large estate, they wanted some Highland cattle on the front lawn, didn't they, Angus? Well, Andy, in those days in Oban, you were never terribly sure who was going to turn up or how they were going to turn up. They were landing helicopters in the wee knoll at the back of the market. That, that's where we were at that time. Now, I... was it a good thing? I don't know, but it was seriously amusing. And I'm so fortunate to have been a part of that e mm. era. 
There was a chap called Pete Waterman, who will be better known to most people as uh, Stock Aiken and Waterman, the oh. famous famous music producer, and he was in there buying cattle like they were going out of style. I think he sold them all eventually and oh. bought some trains, but uh, he was some man. That's right, that's right. Pete Waterman spent a lot of money in Oban, and mm. then, then you had uh, the owner of the company Tip Hook, Ian Anderson, uh-huh. yeah. employed as his stock. His name was Robert Montague, and the outfit was called Rushmore Farms. Used to love those trips to Oban, and always getting into trouble, of course, with Ken Fletcher and John Fraser. Um, Rosemary, always uh, Fletcher, big supporter of the Oban sale, always has been. Yes, yeah, lots of fun with that pair. Um, but Fletch, yes, lots of fun, and sitting in the bar at Oban, listening to his jokes and his stories. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to still have characters about like him, and he's a Great supporter of the bead. Fantastic supporter. We couldn't ask for any more better. We need to move on. Time's going on. But they aren't just toys, are they? As we said, as well as a functional cow, we talk about the Highland beef, and that's been promoted as excellent. And I, I think you could take a bit of credit from that uh, yourself, Angus. You certainly uh, you've certainly were, but got behind the Highland beef um, marketing side. Oh, yes. For uh, several years, heavily involved in rearing and marketing 200 finished Highland steers a year, all of which went through our farm shop and various farmers markets in Edinburgh, Perth, Glasgow, Forford, you name it. Uh, I've often said I actually learned more about the Highland breed in the years I was involved in finishing them than I learned the rest of my life. Uh, to see as many Highland steers hanging on the hoop and to be able to trace their parentage and follow them up and see how well they did, I, I learned an enormous amount from that. And more people should get involved in that aspect of the breed. If this breed is going to survive, we're going to have to take a much more commercial approach to it. And everyone should have a go at finishing some Highland steers and follow them right through and see them hanging on the hook and then you'll know what that, confirmation is uh, really all about. And that's music to Rosemary's ears because Rosemary you do finish a lot of steers and of course the last couple of years you've put one in the show ring and uh, fortunate enough to go on and, and have a, a, a great a great prize at, uh, at Livestock with what looked like a super beast a couple of years back. Yes, uh, uh, 2019 with Black Pudding. Um, yes, he was uh, absolutely fantastic. We decided to do it. We wanted to show how good a Highland bullet could be. And that's why we clipped him out. The the judge was digging at beef and we knew that, that he would like to see a beef animal. And his face was an absolute picture when with, with Dexter Logan walked into the ring. And but I'll give him his due. He did handle the Angus, which was absolutely fantastic to see. And he kept handling the loin over and over and over again, the loin. And to beat and to beat the continental, you know, it was yeah. great. And I, I've got a, a rib of pure Highland beef from my pal Scott Brown in the borders there for my Christmas lunch this year, and I'm sure it, uh, sure it won't disappoint. Need to move on. There's a, a clique of young breeders around now, uh, including uh, yourself and um, and Stephen, obviously Rosemary and Nepal, Catherine, and a few more. But there's a, there's a clique of what I would call the youngsters turning up at the shows, and uh, and they're, they're keen on it. It's a keen club, isn't it? 
It is. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just this weekend, we witnessed fairly new breeders to the society, to the breed, you know, from Tippett Craig, you know, to lift the reserve native champion as stars of the future was just fantastic. With a stunning heifer, Julie, of Tippett Craig. It's such a great buzz. It's a fantastic society to be in. And we, we have these younger and newer breeders coming on, and they have as much enthusiasm as some of the old stalwarts of the breed as well. Um, and it's good, and the positiveness that's coming through as well is fantastic. Um, and the standard at the weekend was just absolutely fantastic to see uh, in the ring, and we did ourselves proud. I, why we got into the breed in the first was, you know, was just to, we could see the enjoyment we had. I mean, at first we just got some cattle to eat, the silage, the, the sheep wouldn't eat. And then, you know, my husband, he had been regularly showing dairy cattle and and he decided to go his own way and he wanted to show the Highlanders. And it was a bug. After the first show, that was us. We never stopped. Um, but the the majority of our business now here at Barnhill is actually with the finishing and the finished product. And uh, and it gives me such pride when I look and see the, the bullocks, you know, especially in or in the summertime out at grass. It's just fantastic to see. Love it. Uh-huh. And of course, you, you'd have had an education from some of the older breeders. We mentioned Rich Thompson earlier on. And of course, the likes of Jack Ramsey as well um, would uh, would be keen to pass on that knowledge to the youngsters and, and instrumental in bringing some of those youngsters into the breed. Yes, I just wish they were still around, you know, I just hope I've learned enough over the years from them to pass on. There, there were such, I always say that, you know, some of these guys, especially Jack Ramsey and Rich, when they give you some advice, you listen mm-hmm. because they don't give it that often. Oh. And it's quite an honour to be to, to get advice from these great stockmen. Um, so it's just a shame they're no longer with us, you know. And Jack would be similar ages with yourself, Angus. I guess you guys would have come through the breed together when uh, when he was bringing out some of those uh, those Highlanders for Tom McClatchy. He was solely responsible for putting the Milliston fold on the map, mm-hmm. and time after time he would come to open with some outstanding females. Mm-hmm. One of his biggest regrets, he told me in one of the last conversations I had with him was. He said, Angus, I really still regret never winning the Bull Trophy in Oban. Uh-huh. And I said, look, Jack, if you could find a couple of right cows, would you go back into the breed? He said, you're damn right, I would, uh-huh. just to win that trophy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the kind of guy Jack, Jack was. Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, in relation to his ability as a stocksman, one just has to look at what he achieved in a relatively short period with his short-term Indeed. A great friend of mine and a, and a mine of information, and we've mentioned him a few times on these podcasts, is sorely missed when it comes to getting Indeed. getting some of the straight information. Well, we're coming towards the end of this potted history that uh, that we've been through, and I'm sure there's a few other people that, that we may have missed out, and my apologies uh, to them. I know one, I think Alan Prentice was somebody you wanted to mention who, who's been buying a lot of these uh, Highland carcasses and, and putting them through his... Uh, his shop there, but there's, is there anybody that, I, that I've left out? We could, we could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to start, and then I would forget to stop. Fair enough. 
Yeah, yeah cer certainly, you know, you've got McNaughton's, you know, Dexter Logan. There, there, there's such a variety of all different ages and experiences. You know, it's great. It, the society is absolutely brilliant. And we've got loads and loads of new members joining as well. I mean, I, I, I've lost count, you know, of how many we get through each week, which is brilliant for the breeds as well. Good. Good. And one person that wishes to remember to you, Angus, a chap called Reuben Doris from uh, County Antrim in Ireland, oh, and, and and one who's very, kept his cattle very strictly on those earlier and traditional lines dating right back to the, the herd book. And we've seen a few similar ones, really, and the, their efforts aren't to be overlooked, really, if it's only as a reminder of... Uh, of where the breed came from and he was a little bit critical saying some of the modern breeders could be accused of getting the breed a bit big and losing their character and what the breed stands for angus could you got a comment on that one i understand where he is coming from but nothing remains the same you know over the centuries the breed not hasn't necessarily changed but various types within the breed have taken prominence and then again, the type of cattle you breed are a reflection of the type of land on which they're kept. You'll go to the Western Isles or Giles or up the West Coast and cattle are very, very similar and no different to the cattle that were there a hundred years ago. Go to some of the more fertile districts and you will see bigger, heavier cows, ideally suited to the land. Uh, that doesn't make them lesser cattle. Uh, it just highlights how adaptable this Highland breed actually is and yeah. can fit into probably a lot more systems than we imagine. And with the great changes that are about to take place in agriculture, I think we have a great future for the Highland breed as a breed that can be kept at minimum expense and still produced an extremely high quality product at the end of the day. I, I was speaking to uh, just a Saturday, Jim Brown and Andrew Hono, and he said, basically said the same, we are in a, we're in the right place, we have the right cattle, the right size for the market. Um, so, fingers crossed, we can develop on this. Certainly, if you yeah. can get the supply, there seems to be a demand for the Highland beef, as we've said, if not only for my own Christmas dinner. Chaps, I've had a much longer time of yours than, than I was asking you to give, so I really appreciate that. And uh, I hope we've covered the, the history of the great Highland breed from end to end. And uh, really appreciate your time, Angus. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and and Rosemary. Rosemary, your time as well. And Excellent. This is a, a fantastic enemy. I've really enjoyed it and enjoyed learning the history, Angus. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Rosemary. It's been fun. Good. <clears throat> thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.